0: I mentioned at the beginning of April that we might have a guest at the end of the month if I could get my shit together. And we seem to have finally gotten it together. (laughs) So this is Queer Half Time. My name is Becca. I use she-they pronouns. And what our lovely guests all the way from Newfoundland like to introduce themselves.
1: Yeah. So my name is Sarah. Uh, I also use um, she-they pronouns. And I am the founder of the Newfoundland and Labrador Queer Research Initiative. All the way here on the East Coast. (laughs) It's that extra half hour in the time difference is, I think, what
0: really messes people up. It's so weird. It
1: threw us, I, it definitely threw us for a bone <laughs> when, like, kind of <laughs> arranging this interview. So, yeah. And we have two time zones here, which does not help at all because we have oh, really? one. Yeah, so so we have the extra half hour. But then in Labrador, it's a half hour behind. So, it's only, it's uh, basically on par with, like, Nova Scotia. <laughs> Uh, so oh, Newfoundland why are you so complicated I know I know and uh, listen I uh I think uh when we joined Canada I know one thing about it when we joined is they actually switched over um driving on the side of the road overnight so in 1948 oh, no. we all drove on the right like so We drive on the right side now, right? Yes, that is correct. I really hope you drive on the right side, Sarah. (laughs) Um, And so we used to drive on the left side, um, kind of like the English system. Uh, And then overnight, they just decided to change it. And it was apparently very chaotic. Um, And even a lot of our roads, like I live by this road. um, It's like the worst intersection. It was made for like streetcars. And then they got rid of the streetcars and are like, let's make this the weirdest roundabout you've ever seen. Oh my god. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a strange place, but uh but I'm happy that we have Zoom and that I'm able to to be able to to join you folks uh, all the way over here.
0: Yeah, yeah. And as you probably heard, Sarah knows about history, which makes me very excited because I am a big dork who has a lot of history facts.
1: Um so what would you like people to know about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a bit of an accidental historian, I would say. Um so Yeah I always have been a a big dork too who loved history facts. I you know was that kid growing up who was like 11 years old and and loved the Titanic (laughs) and and and, you know read all of the Dear Canada books and stuff. Um, You were just talking
0: about the Dear Canada books this morning that's so weird. Sorry continue.
1: (laughs) No no worries. Yeah no my partner and I are um so we're we're engaged and uh for our wedding we're gonna do like um like a cocktail hour but just like free books so like during the cocktail hour we're gonna lay out free books anyways I picked up like several of the dear Canada ones because we have like some goddaughters and stuff who are who who will be around that age and I'm like oh maybe they'll want this I loved it so oh
0: my gosh that's amazing
1: Yeah, yeah but um yeah so I was always that kind of kid definitely growing up and then um eventually I uh I I kind of entered into my my undergraduate degree. Uh, And so I minored in history and and majored in political science. Uh, I'm a really, really big fan of looking at historical institutions and uh, historical oppression and seeing how that actually has painted the world that we live in today. Uh, And so that's actually what I'm focusing my master's on is um, what are the repercussions of years of queer oppression uh, on modern politics in Canada. Uh, And so that's kind of my background per se. I ended up into the queer historian, uh, gig, I guess, so to speak. <laughs> Honestly, dream job. Yeah, well, it was <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool job. Um, I ended up doing it actually, uh, because of kind of this passion I had for, for a work project. Uh, so I was working for the federal government, uh, in commemoration. Uh, and so I was very, very passionate, about this particular project we were researching, uh, looking into the queer history of the First World War, um, which had never previously been talked about. Uh, and unfortunately, as things tend to happen with management shuffles and the way the federal government tends to work, that project got tabled. Um, and I, I just wasn't finished with it. So I decided to, to approach uh, the LGBT Purge Fund and say, listen, I have all of these stories. Uh, I have, you know, both beautiful stories of love and uh, some pretty shocking, um, jarring instances of, of queer oppression in the First World War. And so that was kind of the. Yeah, I, I, I reached out to them, uh, you know, I'm freshly out of my undergrad. Uh, and to the shock of my my imposter syndrome, they actually really liked the proposal and and agreed to fund and have since published uh, the research. So this is kind of mostly what I'm going to be talking about today. Um, but through that passion that I discovered for the First World War, I, I realized that in Newfoundland, we were actually the only province that uh, did not have uh, a queer history archive. Uh, and so... Uh, that's why I started queer research, uh, the Newfoundland queer research initiative, um, to really, first of all, our main priority is to start that archive. Um, and I am happy to say we're launching, uh, in 15 days, um, which is pretty cool. Um, Exciting. yeah, it's been a whirlwind past few days of just like organizing launch events. just so much, it's a lot more political than I would have thought, but it actually makes me feel <laughs> very at home. <laughs> yeah. The- so yeah, I, um, I, I started uh, this because I saw this need in the community and, uh, and that's kind of why we're still trying to fill it. Although our goal with uh, queer research is in general to um, support all kinds of, of uh, humanities, social science, uh, and even health research related to the community and, and how it uh, intersects with our province.
0: That's really awesome. And so I have a question that we have talked about on here like to get a proper historian's opinion so we have talked about some queer folks from history who might not have necessarily labeled themselves or who gave very strong vibes right you know the confirmed bachelor's and how do you like refer to those people like what do you how do you feel about like using modern labels or like using queer or like how do you kind of navigate that
1: that is an excellent um, question, um, and one that we've had to think a lot, a lot on throughout this research. Um, and so what we tend to to use is queer um, as an umbrella term, and that's kind of the norm within uh, a lot of different queer organizations in Canada. And so typically we use that because it has this ability to encompass just like a wide range of identities. Uh, and so, you know, it can comprise anything from gay, lesbian, trans, uh, two-spirit, um, as well as intersex and asexual. Um, and that kind of helps us navigate some of these in-between questions of, okay, confirm bachelor. Um, but in that life itself, that is a pretty queer existence, right? <laughs> um and um so we we tend to navigate it that way um and yeah we use this as a as kind of a the best you know catch-all term because um really throughout history um even like homosexual is a relatively uh new identity marker and even in some of the research like I've done um people used to identify as uh homophiles instead of homosexual homosexual was actually really um homosexual is more of like a medicalized term which is interesting um and so yeah we don't unfortunately have a time machine <laughs> to go back and, <laughs> I think that would make this job a lot easier
0: <laughs> um, for so many reasons yeah honestly.
1: Yeah, yeah for sure <laughs> yeah it, it would definitely involve saving a lot more records but um yeah how's that for primary sources seriously? Like... <laughs> but uh, unfortunately no one's made that technology yet so that's kind of why i I prefer in like, um, queer research and, um, as well as with the purge fund research, we've tended to use queer as our, as our umbrella for that.
0: Very cool. Um, and we've talked a little bit this past month about some of the queer purge of like the civil service more broadly, and then a little bit in like the military and Michelle Douglas, um, a couple of like the really important Supreme Court decision stuff, but we haven't really gone pre-cold war at all and what we've talked about has been pretty you know overarching so I'm very excited to get a little bit more nitty-gritty um so I kind of just want to let you loose to talk about your baby oh dangerous.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you might need I like know, four hours um, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> um so yeah I I think there's this you know the way the, the lawsuit kind of worked um, is that it was only able to really cover a certain period of time um, with the the loss of the apology, um, but the reality of the purge is that it's been a Canadian federal policy from the first moment that European settlers arrived on what we now know as North America, uh, and it's actually intrinsic to the settler colonial mission um, in in at in itself, kind of creating this you know idyllic uh, national nationalistic Canadian um, and eradicating indigenous identities and, and cultures. This was like a key component was kind of the rampant homophobia. Uh, and so that really continued from you know, the 1400s um, until the 1990s, which as you, you talked about um, with the, the lawsuit that finally ended uh, the formal policy of discrimination and even from there like like are we're still dealing with the the legacies of the purge and even well into mm-hmm. the 2000s a lot of these um practices were just just because they weren't um legislated <laughs> it did not mean that they weren't yeah. <laughs> um and you know i've even experienced working for the federal government uh prejudice against queer uh history and um, my own identity wow. so you know, and that was in 2022. So <laughs> um it is really very much, uh, there's this um myth that uh, it ended in the 90s, but it's kind of still ongoing. And if you really think about the way our government structures um, were kind of developed in Canada, it was built on the oppression of queer people. It was built on on the subjugation of all different kinds of marginalized communities and especially queer people through that. Uh, and so that's kind of where the first world war starts to kind of fit into this narrative. Um, because for the first time, the first world war, uh, allowed a lot of individuals to, um, yeah. So for the first time, the first world war, uh, kind of had this wide scale mobilization that came with it. Um, And so along with that, uh, for a lot of people, um, was the first time being exposed to other queer people. Um, And so not only did that bring these kind of wonderful stories of love um, but unfortunately it also brought further oppression uh, as uh, the Canadian government tried really hard to to kind of subdue that and and kind of fight against that And so it's weird because the first world war is is a bit of a I, I call it in the in the report a queer paradox um, you think of it as uh, you know, you, you've we got many of these individuals who fell in love for the first time. There's a number of nursing sisters who met while serving in the first world war and they would become lifelong partners as a result. Um, and you talk about those, you know, the, the way we kind of, Straighten history is that a verb? <laughs> yeah, argument, no. For but I sure. mean the way we rewrite history to to make it so heteronormative. Um, one of those couples, um, Eleanor and Eleanor Parker and and Marnie Pugh, Pew, uh, they're actually buried in Victoria, BC, um, and all, all of the literature I ha- I have seen about them, um, you know, refer to them as best friends in life and death. Uh, <laughs> you know, they shared a life, so they shared a grave. What awesome besties. So oh my gosh. Um, and you know, we know from records and, and whatnot that they self-identified as partners. They wrote their sapphic poetry that they wrote to each other. Yeah. Um, and you know, the fact that they're quite literally buried together is a, is an indication of that. Um and so yeah, these these beautiful stories from the war. Um and one of the the most fascinating Cultures um, in the in the work um, is uh, the the culture of female impersonation, uh, and so that eventually evolved into drag um, that we kind of know today. Um, it uh, and many of the performers were queer and would be what we now consider to be drag queens.
0: Uh, and there's so an amazing pictures. If you just Google <laughs> World War One drag, like.
1: It'll come up, yeah. There's some phenomenal, phenomenal pictures. And there's even like instances. Um, so there's uh, a story from uh, the, the, the Eastern Front um, with a, a performer named Kitty. So she was a Canadian uh, performer uh, and she actually kissed uh, her commanding officer while she was like on stage during a performance in Macedonia um and so we don't know any records of uh of this you know ever being persecuted uh and based on the the account it actually seemed that people were were quite jealous (laughs) because they didn't get to kiss kitty Uh,
0: and so that's wild like the sorry the military is just so wild because you think of it as like just this like beacon of like masculinity but I find some straight men will just like be so that they'll loop back around to like being very very queer. Um, but yeah, so it is this weird paradox, right? Of yeah, there's these young men in drag, but at the same time, it's like oh, any good patriotic man will be, yeah. you know, out fighting.
1: Yeah, and then there's also the the fact that they actively kind of persecuted. Um, yeah. Men. So, uh, throughout uh, my research, I identified 22 men who uh, were persecuted, uh, and so um, of that uh, kind of number, uh, 19 uh, were um, persecuted through the uh, the federal government and through the Canadian military system um, simply for consensual queer relationships. And so they experienced these horrendous trials, um, where they really saw their lives kind of, like some of the most intimate details of of their personal lives, uh, and of their relationships were kind of read out in front of the entire court. Um, And then, if they were seen as guilty, the verdict was publicly read out to their entire encampment where the trial took place, so to hundreds, oh, wow. not thousands of, of their fellow soldiers, um, just publicly outing them. Uh, and then, you know, a number of those men uh, went to uh, prison, so 12 of them in total were in prison during the war, um, five in, uh, in military prisons, uh, and seven um, were put in uh, the British penal system,
0: um, oh, wow. which...
1: We could, you know, we need to kind of separate from what we understand as as a modern uh, prison, uh, so to speak. Um, it was very much more so comparable to to a labor a labor camp uh, in that uh, the men who were incarcerated were forced to do manual labor for ten to twelve hours every day. They weren't able to speak to each other. They the food. Was designed to specifically make them sick as part of the punishment. Uh, oh my god! And so you see all of that, and you consider that seven of these men, you know, were just in there for how they were born, for 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 being queer, <laughs> um, and their like consensual relationships, uh, and yet here they were being systematically kind of dehumanized because of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the purposeful like messing with the ration really i mean you make these people do hard labor and then you take away literally any tool to make it so they could do this in any sort of
1: long term well exactly kind of way and they (laughs) only had like um plank boards uh for the most part to sleep on um and they were given like a pillow (laughs) there was no mattress or anything and like a really rough kind of coconut fiber blanket that would um it would mush up uh, after a certain amount of time. So one of the tasks that they had to do was actually just separate it out, um, manual labor and even the labor they were doing, it was, you know, it was like kind of strategic engineering to not be stimulating enough for them to, you know, get any kind of, feel any kind of satisfaction in their work. Um, but also not be too boring that they they want to escape, where they have time to think about other things. So it's just you think the most tedious kind of manual labor. Um, and so one of the individuals um, who I I researched uh, and was seventeen, uh, he uh, he's actually from the west coast. He, he well, he was raised in the west coast, uh, from Brandon, Manitoba, uh, and he. Uh, actually, the only known queer man to this day uh, on the Canadian National Vimy Memorial. Oh wow! Uh, so he uh, he w- was arrested um, and tried for his sexuality, uh, then subsequently publicly outed uh, to the entire base, uh, and he was sentenced to eighteen months imprisonment. Uh, and so this all happened, you know, in the summer of nineteen sixteen. Come April 1917, of course, uh, Canada just dealt with Vimy Ridge, uh, and Vimy Ridge had kind of these enormous casualty rates, you know, Mm -hmm. one in three men would become casualties, Uh, and so because they needed more bodies, uh, a lot of the men who were imprisoned were sent back, Uh, and so Hardy was actually sent right back to the front lines um, after about eight months of imprisonment, Uh, and so he served at uh, Hill 70 in August 1917, uh, and uh, it was there that he he passed away. Um, and because his body was never recovered, uh, he's commemorated on on the Vimy Memorial. Uh, and his family never heard anything about his imprisonment. Um, no one, that was never like spread. And so it's safe to assume the whole time he was in prison, he just was isolated and completely alone um, for the last really eight months. Um, of his life that's every i feel like every single time
0: if we take some marginalized group and it's like you're not good enough for any of this oh we're running out of bodies jk please come back like it has happened in every single war it's like
1: uh, well, yeah. I mean, and you look at the, I mean, same thing happened with the number two construction uh, battalion, right? Like they, they were like, for the first couple of years of the war, they were like, no, we don't need you. Um, but suddenly when they need a labor battalion, that's when they created the number two construction uh, because they weren't getting enough enlistment. Yeah, it happened with Japanese so, men too. In like, they were all in the internment camps. And it's like,
0: um, oh dear. Um, okay. Here's how you can show you're a Patriot.
1: Like, and then they were like really highly rewarded. Built
0: in a like... National park. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's it's rough to to kind of tell these stories, and it, it's a strange experience because you know, for so long, um, in uh, in this history, um, you know, the First World War has kind of developed this narrative that is just so white you know patriotic and straight <laughs> um and so in a way saying that queer people have always been here it's incredibly empowering so sad at the same time because you see what these these men were put through and and unfortunately we don't have as many just like the nature of records and and you know. Um, homophobia at the time we we don't have as many stories of of men who who thrived um and kind of what I I really like to emphasize are are the stories of individuals who who despite everything um managed to to live satisfying um beautiful lives Uh, and so one of my one of the most poignant examples of that I think is uh is a soldier who's pretty close to my heart, um, as a, as an East coaster. If you've heard, you might've heard the story of, uh, Ross Hamilton, um, or the dumbbells. I don't
0: think I have.
1: Yeah. So Ross, um, was born in Pugwash, Nova Scotia, um, right by the ocean. <laughs> um, and so he, uh, he was raised there and, um, shortly after high school, he did like many of us, uh, do and moved out, uh, West, uh, which I suppose would be East for you folks, um, but to uh, Montreal. Uh, And so he set up in Montreal just before the war, uh, where he worked as a clerk uh, and as a uh, in his spare time, amateur theater artist. And so when the war broke out in 1914, he enlisted as an ambulance driver uh, and actually, um, you know, would kind of go to the front lines uh, and would be a medic in all essence uh and so there's not really there's a bit of a mixed consensus it's, it's not entirely sure how he actually became his uh drag persona marjorie um but uh he had this remarkable falsetto singing voice uh that uh that's quite beautiful to, to, uh, to hear. Uh, and uh, so it was kind of a second nature to, to take on that role. Uh, and so he actually created Marjorie. Um, and, you know, you talk about the, the way we think about the first world war <laughs> and the way we think about Vimy Ridge in particular. Um, but he created his drag character, Marjorie, leading up to Vimy Ridge. So like, while all of these men were preparing uh, and women of course there were women as well but were preparing for this offensive he was crafting a drag performance for them all <laughs> to to alleviate some of the tension uh, and the stress and so like he made Marjorie's first uniform out of uh, out of tent canvas and rosary beads <laughs> and like feathers from pillows and just kind of this amazing stuff eventually he managed to uh to reach out to one of his friends who was an actress in in England uh, and she sent him like some proper frocks and and uh (laughs) makeup and stuff um but uh really he he created this first performance because it was such a stressful time Uh, and so you think about at the core of what is kind of been depicted through nationalist narratives as like the founding of Canada or, you know, this key nationalist moment in Canada's history there was a drag show and there was a queer performance. <laughs> um, and uh, so Ross, uh, with his uh, fellow concert troop members called the Dumb Belts, um, they were such a success uh, in that first performance that they continued to, to perform uh, for soldiers all throughout uh, the front lines uh, for the remainder of the war. And he was so famous um, that he actually had to kind of change out of his costume um because otherwise he would be mobbed (laughs) coming oh my gosh um and it's interesting because soldiers knew that it was a drag show like they knew it was a performance um because he would come in uh like for example he'd go into a mess hall there's an account of him coming into the mess hall after a performance you know to get to get some food um and he was in the marjorie costume Uh, and so everyone stood at attention and like uh until he sat down and then when he uh he sat down put on like this truck driver's kind of roughly voice and called for a drink so um it's uh it's just such a fun kind of beautiful character Uh, and Ross was famous after the war too like they did uh, a six-week stint on Broadway uh, and actually yeah and actually performed all throughout North America uh, even in Europe as well performing for the king and queen of Belgium uh, and uh, performing in in the Coliseum and things like that these kind of amazing um, you know Stories of of just being like this phenomenal performer, um, who was just so well loved. Uh, and so when the Second World War broke out, he he enlisted again uh, to serve, uh, and his, he actually listed his uh, his previous occupation as actress when he enlisted on his file. And so he, you know, found himself performing uh, for soldiers all over the world, um, but unfortunately, he wasn't as lucky. Uh, and he actually was outed uh, to military officials after one of his shows, uh, and kind of was quietly allowed to to retire, um, and uh, was discouraged from from serving for the rest of the war. Wow. Yeah. So he retired back in his hometown, and this is kind of what I really like to emphasize in in just the the personal strength he must have had, um, because despite all of that, he continued to just well you said I could curse so he he continued to kick ass you know (laughs) he settled down in his home community um he had a little cabin by Truro Nova Scotia and he he was going between there and Pugwash Uh, and he was known for just being so incredibly involved that he basically adopted his whole hometown the kids would come to his house for like, you know, ice cream after school. He, lo- he led all kinds of theater performances, um, and, uh, musical performances. He, he retired in, uh, um, in that community and just became this key pillar. Uh, and there's even one, um, lovely gentleman I had the chance to, to interview, Bert, um, and he was raised in Pugwash and, uh, once Bert's mom actually had to uh, go, they were from the Netherlands, so she had to go and deal with some family things. Um, and so Ross actually stayed with with his family for several months, uh, taking care of them while, while their mother was gone away. Uh, and uh, so... And he would also like go with different families to like, if they were sick, he would make them a turkey dinner. <laughs> there was a dog um in the community that got run over um, by a car. And he immediately drove two hours to the next town over to get the, the family a new puppy. Uh, and so he's just, you know, he was just this fantastic man. And it's really unfortunate that People don't really know his story or or his history. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he he died in kind of relative obscurity. Uh, there were a few newspaper articles, but from his death onwards, very few people were taught about his history. I like to do in my presentations. Um, I like to get uh, people to raise their hands to say to ask if they'd ever heard of Ross before. Um, and I've yet to have more than two hands, you know, at a time. Oh wow! And this is in like you know. 30 to 80 people in a room and there's only two people raising their hands. And so there's something, you know, about this history that has been covered up. And I would argue has been explicitly covered up um, because it is queer and it's kind of, it works in twofold. Uh, You, you know, you on one hand, there were no queer people working in any of these really you know public bodies that we see as who who really kind of depict the narrative of the first world war um until 1992 it was illegal to work for veterans affairs canada to if you were an out queer person um and if you were a queer person they had ways of figuring out if you were and whatnot um so how how are we going to tell these stories about the first world war if there's no one you've been working in the departments right and um and that's like kind of a similar instance now is you see the federal government and you see the makeup of the federal government and some organizations have worked really hard um to challenge uh you know the legacy of the purge um but some ha- are managed by people who started their careers when it was illegal for queer people even to be in the government right? right um and so it's this these type of institutionalisms of well things have always been this way so we have to keep doing it that prevent our stories from, from yeah. being told um yeah so that's kind of a broad spectrum of, of what I, I i've researched um but really you know what i've noticed and and what I'd like to speak to because folks, I encourage them to read the report and, you know, that's very much the more so. It's very good. I haven't read the whole thing. I read the
0: first couple, like I think chapters and it was really, really good and you should read it. Thank yeah. <laughs> you.
1: Yeah, But um, that's kind of, you know, I tried to be very, just keep it to the history, you know, and, and keep it very histor- history focused. But what's fascinating is the response um, and just how political the, this has really become. Uh, so when I and I spoke to it a little bit, I did a CBC interview recently where I spoke to this like a tiny bit, but I uh, I did uh, there was a an interview I did that was released across Canada, and you know you start to see people get really angry just about this idea around the First World War. And I think that's part of why honoring this history in a way is is activism (laughs) in my mind, because for so many people uh, and for a lot of homophobes, uh, the First World War kind of sits as this narrative of, well, well, there weren't queer people back in those days. So, Uh, and, you know, you even look at, like, the framework of, of the far right in Canada, and they're always hearkening back to a better time and, and things like that, um, which is, of course, imaginary, but <laughs> um, it's like this imaginary previous yeah, era. entirely. Um, Where, uh, you know, men just went to war and they didn't have feelings and there were no drag shows and, and things like that. And, and what's really fascinating about this, you know... It, Fascinating, but also frustrating. Um, It's just the loops that people will go to to justify it. Uh, It's a little hilarious, to be honest. Um, So uh, I did, uh, so one of the interviews talked specifically about the female impersonation culture and drag in the war um, and drag right now. I mean you folks know in your neck of woods is a very contentious topic oh we're fully away I'm very proud of Newfoundland (laughs) um so I've been I've been monitoring um the uh so part of my uh research uh for like my master's and just mostly because it needs I think it needs to be documented um I've been monitoring the uh the the protests across Canada against all ages drag shows um and so, yeah, I, I'm ha- I'm happy to send it to you if you're interested. Um, I mostly track 2022, um, but I've been keeping kind of a keen eye um, on 2023 as well, and I want to add it further. Anyways, I digress here. Um, but I would love to have that sent to me. I also hope you do some serious self care whenever you. <laughs> it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, my self care is uh, is often spite. Does that make sense? In a, That's fair. It must totally like a, a professional way to say spite is my self care because it just makes me want to just do more for the community. There was yeah. a, an amazing um, library, I think it was in um, Sarnia, or was it? I think it was in Orilla, actually, Ontario. Um, and the librarian said for every protester that attended uh, their drag story time event, um, they're going to host another drag story time event and I saw that I I love that I and that's kind of what I try to I try to kind of embrace a little bit even for research you know it started with my frustration uh with the the federal government and um and their policies around these stories and I try not to go into much detail um but they, you know, refused to to publish anything unless we had expressed permission from the descendants just to, to because they were worried that descendants might be homophobic, right. um, yeah, and upset about that. Um, so, I, uh, you, you know, I really, I tried to channel it into my work, <laughs> and it just makes me want to do more for the community. And, and, um, when all of this came out, my partner was like, "Well." if your research isn't pissing people off, is it really making a difference? <laughs> um, and so that's kind of, you know, and I mean, of course there's research that doesn't piss people off, that's making a difference. But if, if, it's, if it's challenging these narratives at its core, um, then that means it's reached a lot of people. And with social media nowadays, you only get the angry ones, but uh, it, it hopefully means that, that the, the reach has been very broad um yeah so uh but um I was talking about drag wasn't I <laughs> um, so yeah I found I found it was um was fascinating um because the lengths that people go to to uh to justify it um like I've had people message me and, and claim that it started the first world war um the but drag because- started it I mean, yeah, they claim that drag started the First World War because
0: it, it right. wasn't a couple cousins having a spat and no, throwing millions no, of young men at each no other. No imperialism
1: or anything. no, 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 no. It was the drag cult apparently, <laughs> um, which I found very funny. <laughs> um, and like, there is a couple other ones where it was like, um, well, they're just you know, don't be stupid. They're just they're just trying to relieve tensions in a in a hard time and build camaraderie I'm like what do you think drag is
0: <laughs> what do you think we're doing uh, now my friend
1: like <laughs> what, what what do you think yeah and they're like they weren't they weren't queer you can't say that they were queer there's one guy who was so upset um about you know talking about me talking about the queer men in the first world war um and how they were like caught and uh, persecuted for their sexuality and he was like well how do you know that it was their sexuality and not just like a one-time thing Like what if what if they were just like, like, what if what if they, you know, what if they weren't really queer and they just wanted to figure it out? And I mean I think that is valid, but it's very interesting. it is fascinating. I (laughs) you know, and from a political side like, you know, I, I find political psychology just fascinating. And it's like so like the loops that people people are jumping to. It's like it's not gay if it's for the bros you know <laughs> i mean um, the bible did say that it's not it's okay to be gay if you're in the military yeah <laughs> yeah 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 the bible says so <laughs> um and so but that's what it, it's been really funny to to kind of see in the sad end you also get a lot of people who are you know like to progress to profess themselves as allies um, and they'll say, I'm allies, but I'm i I'm Alice. I'm an ally, but I don't think that this really happened. Or they're they're like, Well, I don't care, just go and live your life. Why do you need to bother the first world war? You know what I mean? It's it's been bother it. It doesn't have feelings. Yeah. They're like, Leave it, leave it alone. I'm like,
0: okay. It's so the the people because, who are like, I'm not racist, but it's like, oh, it's so what you're about to say is going to be
1: incredibly racist. Well, and it's, it's fascinating because it's like, if someone came out with any other article about the First World War, no one's going to comment, why dig this up now? Well, <laughs> like I no one around Remembrance Day is like, why do we care about the First World War? Um, you know, like if someone came out and was like, wow, I found that I don't know. There's lots of books coming out about nursing sisters during the war. Uh, well, they might still get some backlash, but not so much. Um, or what's another good example? I don't know. Something like, oh, wow, a lot of men in the First World War broke, you know, had shrapnel in their leg a lot or something. You're, the bulk of those comments are just going to be like, wow, fascinating. Thanks for adding to the literature. Yeah. I um, found with the comments in towards my research has been, well, does it, it was 100 years ago. Who cares? It was 100 years ago. It doesn't matter now. Um, Sorry, my dog's being weird. Um, That's okay. <laughs> my dog is always weird. It's all good.
0: <laughs> do you think they would be less mad if the research was being presented by, like, not a member of the queer community? Or do you think they would still be mad? I don't
1: know. I don't... I. I think the... the the attacks on me personally probably wouldn't be there as much because <laughs> I've yeah. had people, you know, I've had people like stalking my Twitter DMs. <laughs> oh my god! And like calling, so there's something like I've been called like a pedophile and a pervert and uh, We get called groomers constantly. Yeah, yeah, like a groomer, a pet. Like someone was like. I'll like tweet something about queerness or oh I think I was talking to a history teacher on Twitter um, and he was like oh my god I'd love for you to come in my classroom we should teach this kind of stuff and I'm like yeah I'd love to let's arrange a presentation and this person was like why would you want to teach to a classroom pedophile like (laughs) the 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 vitriol you know it's uh, I don't think it'd be there as as much but I also wonder if Part of me wonders if this research, you know, queer people, uh, straight people have been straight allies have been in in public forums for this research for a very long time, and yet we've seen kind of nothing about it. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: 100%. Um, yeah, and like even you know, so called allies that I dealt with were so hesitant to stick their necks out yeah um with these type of stories um because it could be controversial so you know anyways and that's a bigger conversation about what allyship is a verb (laughs) so it's a whole 100 percent, which we've talked about many times
0: um i have two questions for you one is not super related is that the charter of rights on the wall behind you i'm a nerd yeah (laughs) okay And so I was gonna say, I'm like, I don't know who's the bigger nerd, the fact that you have it on your wall or the fact that I recognize it and it's like across a room through a zoom. I had a
1: couple um, of people point it out in Zoom calls and be like, yeah, I think and said the exact same thing. <laughs> but yes, um, fun fact, you get a free one if you ask. <laughs> um if you if you ask the federal government. But yeah, I um I love the charter. I, I think it does have flaws and I've since kind of read about it, but I got the chance, uh, and again, this has to stay between us, we're friends now um <laughs> friend. um i got the chance to to meet sven robinson through my research oh and my it was God. it right okay thank you for me it was like meeting like my political hero we've talked about <laughs> that twice people <laughs> in my life about it and they're like i don't know who that is sarah but okay and i'm like no he's the reason i can get married i don't think I you don't understand, understand. <laughs> and so yeah. I had to like act like a normal person for that whole you know and I and we still like send emails to each other um and stuff and I still am like well this is wild um but I had to like be like a normal person and, and be like and pretend that I haven't like studied his life's work for like most of my degree oh my gosh yeah um but yeah I mean you know that kind of is is the thing that does give me hope I think in all of this because we see the United States and a lot of our politics, especially like the drag protests tend to align with, with kind of these movements in the U S but the charter is kind of this beautiful thing that we have that protects us and has gotten so many protections for our community could it have more yes but it was written it for a document written in the 80s it's phenomenal yeah Uh, but but yeah and so that gives me some kind of safety I think when we start to see politicians pretend like they're going to start acting like the United States and um banning things like drag like those things are going to be hopefully Hopefully, thankfully, our Supreme Court is not uh, um, is not partisan,
0: (laughs) per se. It's still baffles So It's not life appointments either, which is nice if you do get a shithead on there.
1: Well, it's (laughs)
0: fascinating
1: to me, too. I mean, I don't even I don't understand how the court and I'm just getting on a complete tangent, but I don't understand how the courts in the states can be openly recognized as a like as political and they still consider themselves a democracy. Like to me, the pillar of a democracy is like a neutral court. (laughs) Um yeah, anyways, I digress.
0: We're all thinking it. We're all thinking it. Um so I had another question because we've talked a little bit about like the purge during the Cold War and stuff where like queer and communism were the same. Mm -hmm. Um and you talk a little bit during your like findings about how before it was communism it was like German Mm -hmm. right like it was anything like Germans were queer and queers were evil
1: Germans Mm -hmm. this other get out here yeah yeah they they you know throughout history there's been a way of othering us Um, and there's been language associated with our community that has been used to to depict us as the enemy uh yeah. so yeah it, it it was very strange when i started to dig into it um because i hadn't you know i i knew about the first world war and i knew about kind of the the geopolitical context but when i like actually dug into the the literature and i found like these postcards of <laughs> um of like uh uh of like the German Chancellor, <laughs> um, not the German, sorry, it wasn't Chancellor back then. The Kaiser. The Kaiser, right? that's the word I'm, yeah, apologies. Chancellor
0: was the next war. Yeah.
1: Chancellor <laughs> was the next war. Um, but yes, the German Kaiser uh, and his kind of son um, and, uh, you know, how it connected to the Eulenburg affair. It was fascinating. But uh, for, for your Is audience. How do you uh, say that? Oh, uh, I googled it before the representation okay so and Borg um, Borg yeah cool like, like straws like Strasbourg I also okay it's those uh those like three German classes in university working extra hard here <laughs> yeah. um but yeah so for for your audience the the Eulenberg affair they took place from 1907 uh to to 1909 and it was like the series of court trials mm-hmm. um of a number of high-ranking military and government officials who all kind of surrounded the Kaiser uh, and and saw and and were persecuted uh, under kind of sodomy and gross indecency legislation. And so this was like a huge, huge scandal at the time. Um, And it really kind of colored how how Germany was depicted in the war. Uh, And so you get those very strange postcards um like the ones in the report where um german officers are are depicted kissing the devil um and, and things like that um and you know very homoerotic depictions yeah of of, uh, of the enemy um and so yeah it's uh, it's fascinating and and you see this kind of all throughout canadian history um there's kind of this there was a strategy of othering a community by depicting them as queer. So that kind of yeah. both ways. Um, so not only were queer people kind of uh, depicted as racialized individuals, um, but racialized individuals were often depicted as queer. And so, like for example, um, and I haven't dug too much into the Canadian context. This is more so what I've read about um, kind of the Spanish uh, colonialism, but it, okay similar process likely took place considering the, the, the legal context at the time. Um, but the fact that indigenous people, uh, in, in kind of Mesoamerica practiced, uh, kind of queer customs and, and two spirited cultures, um, really was used as justification, uh, to get the church, for example, on board with colonialism, uh, and, uh, and it depicted all indigenous people as queer um, and and things like that. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's unfortunately a tale as old as time and um, something that, again, we're seeing crop up again with queer people being depicted as pedophiles. Um, and, uh, and yeah. So, or even, I mean, even in the Russia-Ukraine war he's um, really interesting yeah. in that Russia is depicting Ukraine as queer and like, and, yeah. and like kind of othering them and like saying, oh, they're bad. Look at how, look at them at this pride parade and, and things like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a tale is unfortunately history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes that's one of my favorite
0: things. Yeah. Um is there anything else we didn't get to talk to that you like really really want to touch
1: on today? No. No, I kind of uh, Awesome. yeah. And sorry I've, I've been I mean I I have I've been trying to bring it in the modern context mostly because I'm writing a um I'm I'm All writing a grant for some I'm writing a like a web feature uh, for an organization and um part of it is taking this research and then bringing it into the forefront, um, and right. how it relates to modern human rights and stuff. And so my, uh, <laughs> my brain is very much thinking, okay, this research in the context of, of today and now, and, and, um, I, I think as a political researcher, I'm always thinking, what does this relate to the geopolitical context? Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps which I think you have to do yeah yeah right like
0: I mean there's no really understanding what we're going through now without understanding how we got here right well exactly.
1: um yeah 100% yeah
0: and on this show to wrap up we always do a queer joy um so this can be like an interaction you had a piece of media really anything Um, uh, my queer joy this week is A couple of our kids from our juniors group had their school musical this weekend, and I went. Um, It was Matilda. It was great. It was very cute. Um, Yeah, and it was just like a lovely sunny day to drive out to freaking Gibbons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that was
1: mine. Oh, mine. Um, is that uh my partner and i are buying a house and so we've been so, like, oh really God. starting to pack and get excited about moving into uh into our place which is coming very soon so uh yeah we're pretty that's been a, a big queer joy for us that's amazing congratulations thank you it's like the new, it's the new canadian dream i think um, you know we're lucky to live in like the i mean i think alberta's one of the other only few places um in Canada where you know like Newfoundland you can still buy property although it's slowly not (laughs) um so we are really 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 lucky um and uh yeah so I'm very excited to uh we bought a house from the 1920s and we're gonna restore all the furnishing and we very (laughs) cute we've been digging into like furniture we've been digging into um like wood reconstruction, which has been really fun for the both of us. So <laughs> that's not a queer joy. Oh my
0: God. I I just got uh like a really like an antique sewing machine. It's like on a treadle. So it's one of the ones with the pedal on it that's like built into a table.
1: Um so yes I'm a big fan of antiques. I've, you can see yeah. the trunk in behind us. That's my partner asked for, that for her Yes. I think it was her tenth birthday. <laughs> she asked for this trunk <laughs> an antique trunk. An icon, oh. true. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. She's uh, I bring her to you events um so that I don't have to talk to people because she's got more character for all of us. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I have had a lovely time talking to you. Thank
0: you. Um, I'm so glad we were able to finally figure out the time zones. And again, um, thank, you. thank you everybody else for joining us. Um, be kind to yourself and others, and we'll see you next
1: week. Uh, thank you so much for having me.